Hello, everyone watching and listening. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to author and philosopher and repeat Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast guest Pat Flynn. We'll be discussing a recent interview that Jordan Peterson had on the question of God. Pat, well, thanks for making yourself manifest, buddy. <laughs> it's pretty good, Jake. I have to, I have to give it to you. Man. Sounds like you might have rehearsed that a little bit. I tried, man. Yeah. I he's hard. Me. He's he's a hard one to, and I, I never do impressions, so I'm not really one to uh, to offer any substantive critique here. But a lot of people try to do Peterson. A lot of people fail. But when he's done well, it is so funny. <laughs> I give myself a seven out of ten for that one. I think that's fair. I think that's a yeah. fair self-assessment. Yeah, yeah. It's, Manif it's when manifest, you're not manifest kind of that that did it for me. You gotta hit manifest. Yeah. And then you gotta throw in like an unexpected buddy. It's like, whoa, <laughs> you know, he's he's serious but informal. It's wild. Yeah. What's the other phrase of his that he uses a lot? He's got like two or three phrases. Um, yeah, I, that I, he constantly I'm not that throws out. I'm not um, that much of a fan. I mean, I like him, but I'm not like a crazy fan that I know of. One is, so, well, well, what do you think about that? It seems to me, he says that a lot. Oh, it seems to me. Okay. I think yeah. so, doesn't he? Or maybe that's just, I don't know. All philosophers say that. That's just your sort of, you know, modesty signaling, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah, man. good to be here. Well, fantastic. Good to be here as well. And um, you know who's about to be here too? Piers Morgan. And Jordan Peterson, not in not in like live or anything, but via this uh, this wonderful video that you sent me, and we're going to comment on. So, without any further ado, Pat, let's begin. Yeah, sure. I want to talk to you about your your new book, "We Who Wrestle with God." Now, a lot of your fans, there's all yeah. sorts of Jordan Peterson groups that you can join who debate whether you really believe in God or not. So, let's just get it on the table. Do you believe in God? Mm. <laughs> I don't think that's any of I don't think that's anybody's business. I think it's the most private question you can ask someone, but then I would say also, uh, what's the right response to that? By their fruits you will know them. How's that? Let's pause there. What do you think about that, Pat? Do you think yeah. that actually should be that much of a private question? No, of course not. I think it's a pretty such an important question and it bears significantly you know, on human life and human society, I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask somebody if they believe in God. Uh, but backing up, uh, you know, why are we doing this? I, I think I should just just mention that people often ask me to do response or reaction videos, especially to popular figures like Jordan Peterson. And he's frequently popping up, you know, wading into different philosophical and theological disputes. And the truth is, I just don't know if I have the personal stamina to do that sort of thing. So I thought it might be fun to just do it with you. <laughs> so, yeah, so just totally, people yeah. are wondering why, why is this happening? That's sort of the background. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know what uh, this is like right off the bat. As soon as I heard this, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is exactly how I would expect Jordan Peterson to answer this question, which is by giving really a non-answer, which is one of the more, I think, frustrating uh, aspects of his, his public persona. It seems to me that he really, really likes to, um, and again, I want to give a charitable read, you know, uh, be purposefully ambiguous about things, because I think he's he maybe is just trying to resist people putting him into a certain type of box. And to some extent, I can appreciate that. Uh, I understand that if you just label yourself in some way, it always comes with tons of preconceptions uh, from other people about what it is exactly that you believe, whether or not you actually believe those things. So I can appreciate wanting to resist that. 
at the same time, it's frustrating when he's just asked a very direct, simple question and he just can't seem to give like like not not re not even any reasons behind it, but just like yes or no, as uh, as we'll see going forward. So that's just I don't know, I guess a personal issue I have with some of the stuff he says. But generally, I, I do like I do like Peterson. Yeah. Yeah. I think on the spectrum of being a more concrete kind of thinker or going entirely abstract, he is so far towards abstract. And honestly, that can be kind of nice. So, you know, we've all dealt with very concrete, like atheists who say, well, there's no God. I can't see him. I can't find him. It's like, OK, that's a, you got to expand your horizons a little bit and kind of offer a little bit more abstraction into your worldview than just the most concrete things you can see and touch and feel mm -hmm. like and Jordan Peterson's on the other side. It's like, do you believe in God? He's like, well, I believe in the spirit of X, Y, and Z. it's just so hopelessly abstract. You kind of need him to ground it in something a little bit more concrete. He's a slippery so, salmon to be sure. He's a slippery salmon for sure. But yeah, as far as religion being private, I think actually nothing is farther from the truth. I mean, like Aristotle and whatnot would talk about how, you know, it, religion is a virtue yes. and it's a virtue in the same vein as, as filial piety as uh, patriotism, property order, ordered love of nation. But this is something which is more common than just one's family, more common than just one's state or nation or polis. It's something that's common to every single creature. Yes. So it actually should be the very least private possible thing to believe in and order your life around our common creator. Oh, I, I agree. I think that Peterson is laboring under, you know, the the secular spell right that mm -hmm. hey you know religion belief in god that's okay so long as it's just your thing right um and that's yeah. kind of ironic because i think he's somewhat waking up to the major issues of a secular paradigm that he still operates under a great number of those secular assumptions and also just you know the secular world will just try to beat it out of you with shame you know, just just the mockery division, not everybody, of course. But in general, I think people want to hold it private because they're worried that. they. Oh, yeah, mocked, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So they right. just retreat to, oh, it's kind of my private thing. Don't ask me that question, because if you do and then I answer, I'm opened up to ridicule. Yes, 100 percent. I think that's I think that is a lot of it. Um, no disagreement. Yeah, let's I know he, he speaks more on this. So why don't we uh, see what he has cool. to say next? Yep. Mm -hmm. Let's keep going. That. Well, let me, the right let me ask you a different question then. Do you do you think there is a god? Oh, I'm terrified that there might be, Pierce. How's that? And I, you know, I'm not trying to be a smartass when I'm making that comment either. Like they say, it's an old, it's an Old Testament saying, I believe that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and that's actually that is actually about as true a statement as you could manage in such a short phrase, and. You know, people have congratulated me. I was at the Buckley Institute last night, and they were congratulating me on my courage. And I think, and I said this last night, it's like, you guys don't understand. It has nothing to do with courage. I'm just afraid of different things than the people who lie. And I'm afraid, for example, of what happens when you lose control of your tongue. And I said that back in 2016 when I first opposed the Canadian government. And people were, you know, congratulating me. It's like, well, you're so brave to stand up to the government. It's like, I'm nowhere near as afraid of the government as I am of what happens when people lose control of their tongue. I studied totalitarianism for, well, since I was 13 years old in depth. And I know what happens when people lose control of their tongue. What happens is everything goes to hell. 
And I don't mean, I mean that metaphysically. I mean, it might even mean it theologically, but you can just say, don't even bother with that. But what's fascinating? Let's just okay. mean it practically. But what's interesting? I do like people who just yell things during interviews. I need to pick that habit up. Let's <laughs> just mean it practically. It's great. Yeah, you uh -oh. know, if nothing drum. else. They're they're both very dynamic figures, uh, Piers Morgan and, and and Peterson. So they're always they're always interesting, they're always spirited, which I appreciate. So I mean, there's 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 a lot there. Um, I think it's I would say that hey, look, you know, the belief obviously it can be ambiguous. Uh, I really appreciate, by the way, Piers like pressing this question. I think that that's that's the right and good thing to do because you know we got a slippery salmon here. We're trying to pin him down. That's that's good. Just give me a simple yes or no. I appreciate that because a lot of people just kind of let him slide away on that. So I like that he's applying a bit of pressure. Um, you know what what does belief mean? Um, well, it could mean a couple different things. One is you know essentially like your attitude towards a towards a proposition. So if you take the proposition, you know that God exists do you find yourself assenting to that? Right. Um, I do. I know you do Jake. Uh, that's one way of, of thinking about it. Uh, so if, if we just need to engage in some disambiguation, maybe we should just state it like that. Uh, or it could mean something like, do you trust God? Um, do you find yourself in allegiance to God and, or, or Christ? Or, and, and that of course, you know, uh, I think sort of encompasses the first understanding of belief, but that's, that's that's a much wider understanding of belief. They're both important questions, um, and I think they, they it's it's both perfectly fine and, and proper to ask those questions in in certain situations. But at the end of the day, I, I think it's a little silly to to play so many games over otherwise simple questions. Just like, <laughs> um, yeah, it, right. It's, it's interesting. He's like, you know, I'm terrified there could be a god, and the implication is well, we'd have to change the way he lived or engage in some type of worship or tie himself to a certain proposition which he worries could later be falsified etc but it's like you know I, I said on before in the podcast i built houses and there are times where i'm building something and i think darn it did i do that right and then i think there is a set of international codes that i have to abide by have binding power over me via the local building office should i look it up and find out if I'm wrong. And there's always the temptation to be like, well, what if I just didn't look it up? What if, <laughs> if I, I just kept going with my little tractor, right? Ignorant. Yeah. I just rode around on my tractor, filled myself <laughs> with joy, and just forgot all about it. Because guess what? I'm sure it's fine the way it is. And I really don't want to actually have to submit my work and what I do to some type of, you know, code that's yeah. going to tell me what I have to do. But the fact is, it's already, if it exists, it's already binding on me, whether I look at it or not. This isn't like, what's his name? It's Schrodinger's cat, right? Yeah. <laughs> like right. This just is or it isn't already. So mm -hmm. I don't think that he should be so terrified of, of finally rendering a judgment about yes. this particular topic. Because if God's real, he's real whether or not he renders a judgment. Yeah, sorry, I was drinking a, a sip of coffee. Uh, there's a lot here. In fact, I think it's worth just asking, well, what what could be terrifying about the existence of God? And I think actually quite a number of things, if we're being honest. And I think that what Peterson says here really tells against the common atheistic slogan, if you just believe in God for comfort because you like rainbows and unicorns and you're, you're weak and unmanly and stuff like that. Uh, certainly that's never been the case uh, for me. Uh, I think that a theistic worldview, properly understand, has 
many terrifying terrifying elements to it actually Mm -hmm. right um you know uh not like aside from what you can uh i think peer into philosophically you have all of theology uh you know prospects of eternal salvation damnation work out your salvation with fear and trembling uh i think what you're getting at jake is what sort of objective moral order uh, might we have to align ourselves with and how how might that have to involve something of a spiritual root canal um, of aligning ourselves with the true good versus pursuing merely apparent or lesser goods. And that itself can be very scary and very terrifying, at least from the Christian perspective. And I speak uh, I speak from the perspective of a convert who was actively terrified, uh, I think trying to properly understand the wider philosophical, and theological implications of suffering and evil. You read Thomas Aquinas, and he doesn't think that most of the suffering of this life is punishment. He thinks it's medicine. He thinks it's medicinal. And that's kind of a terrifying thing, right? That, That we have a sort of spiritual cancer that needs something like spiritual chemotherapy. Uh, that's a hard thing to accept, especially if you have to accept it for yourself. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just not all rainbows and unicorns. There's a lot of things that, Yes, I think in in it by way of grand narrative, the theistic picture is far more beautiful, far more sublime, far more optimistic, and far more hopeful than naturalism, which I've argued for a very long time. Uh, I think does ineluctably lead to nihilism, despite some very clever attempts to, you know, dodge that conclusion. I don't think they're successful. Um, but in the immediate here and now. Uh, when you think seriously about the existence of God, I think there's a lot to be scared of, <laughs> quite frankly, right? So I appreciate the honesty on his part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like how you hear from atheists that, well, it's some type of child abuse telling kids that there's an existence of hell. Oh, also, you only believe in your religion because it's rainbows and butterflies, and it just comforts you and makes you feel better. It's like, whoa, whoa, Which whoa. one is it, buddy? <laughs> right, fun, a little inconsistent, know? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's keep going interesting is i completely agree with you by the way um and you are the most open book of almost anyone i've ever interviewed right to the point i asked you if you believe in god i didn't actually know what you were going to say but for some reason you're reluctant to say why are you reluctant well okay let's let let's walk along that well because it's a it's not a it's not a well-posed question it's too complicated an issue to be dealt with like that. You step into instant traps just by accepting the question. So I'll show you what I mean. So the first thing I would say is, what do you mean by believe? Like, okay, do you think go. that a statement about the existence? Yeah, what do you mean by yeah, believe? Yeah, but fair enough. Like, that's what we were just talking about. So. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, you, I do remember what's coming up after this. And uh, I definitely want to hear some of your thoughts on it, Pat. I think you're the one for this one. God is something like a scientific theory? Do you think it's a list of facts? Is it a factual question? Does God exist or not? Is it a factual question like you're asking about whether a cup on a table exists or a plate on a table, an artifact in a room what do you mean by this what do you mean by believe i'll stake my life on the proposition that god exists how's that well you're going to first have to define god in order to define in what sense you're staking your life on this thing is that is that that his way of saying yes (laughs) right i think so right i think that he then defined he's he said how he doesn't want to define it which he doesn't want to define god's existence as i guess a set of facts 
or a scientific, scientific theory or um, in line with the way that a cup on a table exists yeah yeah no that's you know what there's a lot of um commendable qualities about uh his his attitude there i think he's right you know god is not supposed to be a scientific postulate he's the god hypothesis if you will is not a scientific hypothesis it might be a metaphysical one you know uh when we're talking about science we're in the realm of etiology we're trying to understand how one physical process you know unfolds or relates to another physical process uh but god uh, always traditionally has been a question properly situated in ontology which tries to understand, well, why are there any physical events? Why are there any physical things at all? So I don't think it's entirely wrong to think about God as a theory, as long as we understand that you can have a metaphysical theory. I do think it is definitely wrong to think God uh, of God as a scientific theory. So he's on he's on point there. Um, uh, as a as a fact, if we think of facts of just concrete states of affairs of concrete entities, then yeah, I, I don't have an issue of saying that it is a fact, you know, that that God exists or something like that. Um, I think he's just, I think he's trying to resist. And this is what I appreciate. Uh, I always just want to try and give the most charitable interpretation. I think he's just trying to resist anthropomorphisms. I think that's the trap that he's afraid to fall into. You know, you're kind of, and I'm sure he, people have hit him with this. Oh, you believe in God, uh, the bearded man in the sky, right? Uh, well, I just, yeah, I believe in one less God than you. You reject all those other 10,000 gods or whatever. I think he's trying to avoid that. And, you know, one can maybe appreciate uh, something of a negative theology in his approach, which is certainly something that I think would resonate with both of us, even if he's not articulating it explicitly, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think he's equating literal with physical. In a sense, he's saying, well, are you saying that God exists like the cup on the table exists? It's like, well... I think that's kind of pointing to his conception that to have something actually and really existing, it has to be physical. And then if it's not physical, it's not real in the same manner. I don't yeah. know if that's. I, I yeah, that's interesting. That I mean, we can, we can go into some metaphysical waters there. Uh, no, I don't think God exists like the cup exists, because I think that the cup's existence is really just bearing a relationship to exist with a capital E and exclamation mark. Right. That mm -hmm. the cup's existence is something like it's being caused to exist and bearing a certain relationship to that which just is subsistent existence itself. So I would actually say the cup is less real than god and the, the grand metaphysical scheme so he's on to something there god does not exist just like the cup exists that would lead to some metaphysical issues uh but they're they're both actual they're both present in reality we can say that 100 percent. yeah i think that that it'd be helpful to kind of get him there and say all right we can kind of lay these things out in order of how real they are we can have the understanding of the cup we're all thinking about the cup so it exists in our minds What's more real than that is the cup that's actually existing on your table. But what's more real than that is the ground of reality for the cup to exist. So the idea is grounded by the cup. The cup is grounded ultimately by God, right? Yes, right. Yeah, I'm a big fan of I just have a paper coming out next month in the Review of Metaphysics talking about um, essentially ordered causation um, uh and its relationship to deep metaphysical dependence or, or theories of grounding. And I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. I think that God is the deep metaphysical cause of things. He's not, a, a, you know, he's again, he's not a cause in the sense that a lot of contemporary um, philosophers and scientific thinkers uh, think of, you know, a mechanistic sort of pushing cause. That's not the sort of cause God is right. God is the sort of cause 
that is the necessary and sustaining condition for there to be a natural system of physical events, uh, regularity, all that sort of sort of stuff. The other thing I'll, I'll say about uh, how does God not exist like the cop? I mean, that 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 again kind of sets you up for some, I think, good philosophy and good theology because we can think about why do we posit the existence of God in the first place? Like, what is God supposed to explain? Well, I think at the heart of all cosmological reasoning, uh, if we can put it in in a sort of kindergarten-ish way, is the notion that there are certain features, certain aspects of the world that are not intrinsically completely intelligible, that always point beyond themselves for some explanation of why they exist or why they have this sort of shape or features or properties that they have, right? So contingent things, composite things, finite things, uh, a cup seems to be all that, right? It is a contingent thing. It is a composite thing, not just physically, but metaphysically of, of potency and act. It is a finite thing. It is a bounded instance of existence. And all those features seem to make us want to hunt down some further explanation for the cup. Why, why is it here? Where did it come from? Why does it continue to exist here and now? And when you, I think, trace that, that sort of intuition through, you have to ultimately cash things out by some necessary reality, something that sort of exists of its own accord through its own nature. And then whatever else this thing is, it has to be relevantly different from all those things that it's ultimately supposed to explain. So you just strip away all those contingency implying attributes or features. You strip away the notion of compositeness. You strip away the notion of finitude. And this is negative theology. So whatever else God is, yeah, he's not like the cup, right? He doesn't participate in existence. He doesn't have a particular geometry. He's not composed of parts. That doesn't give us a whole ton of immediate positive content about God. But what we're searching out is this sort of necessary, deep metaphysical causal condition for why the cup is here at all. And it is telling us something, right? We have reason to think that there is something like that down in the basement of reality and whatever it is, it's a very special sort of thing. And it isn't like this cup that I'm drinking from right now, which, by the way, says Hello Beautiful on it. <laughs> well, that was your kindergarten explanation. And it's like I've always said, Pat Flynn would start one hell of a kindergarten if you if you ever get around to that. I, um, I do. I do handle preschool for our homeschooling. So I have a oh, do you? little bit of experience. See, there you go. Mm -hmm. I want to know what those preschoolers are learning. Um, all right. Well, cool. Well, let's keep going. Well, is that an answer? Well, that's the right answer. I would ask you, <laughs> my supplementary, do you ever pray? <laughs> Always. Who do you pray to? <laughs> the spirit that protects you from He's searching for it, Jake. <laughs> I know. It's just like, how do I say something non-committal? Non Clever, but non-committing. Exactly, yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> Not it. always easy it. to find that, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess I would ask him as a follow-up, what do you mean by a spirit? Like, are you, like, what are you talking about? The spirit that protects you from hell. Do we think a, a spirit is something that has actuality? Do we think it's just a description of something? Just a, an attitude of ours, right? Yeah. Sure. Like, what exactly are we talking about here? Again, and then it's, it's I think wonderfully, wonderfully ambiguous, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, let's hear what he says about uh, sure. the, this quote-unquote praying to this uh, quote-unquote spirit. But that, many people would say, is God. Hey, sounds good to me. 
And so you might say, well, I said I'm very old, so what does that mean? If, I, if it wasn't a little bit funny, I'd probably I... bag my head a wall against the wall with this sort of stuff. <laughs> I know. Hey, it sounds good to me. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. All right. Let's see what he says here. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything to say to that. Just the keep most, going. Yeah. The clearest words I can say. And I do that by paying attention. I'm listening to the words and feeling them as I move along, thinking, is that a firm foundation in the morass? Is that a, is that a bridge over the abyss? Is that word the right word? I do that when I'm writing. I do that when I'm talking. And I do that because I don't want to be in the abyss. And the pathway over the abyss is the truth. Now, with regards to belief in God, you might say, and I know, I know that, that you're not particularly religiously inclined, at least that's the theory. It's like, well, you have a character, Pierce. Everyone has a character. You could say that would be the spirit of Pierce Morgan. And then we might say, well, let's inquire into that spirit. If you were a hedonist, then the spirit that would be Pierce Morgan would be your hedonistic whims. And that would be your God. I would say if you're a noble person, then your spirit is something elevated above your mere whims. And then it's the spirit that's inculcated within you. It's a consequence, perhaps, of your socialization. But in a more sophisticated way, it's actually a consequence of the spirit that you've allowed as a consequence of your choices to dwell within you. And that spirit has a nature. It might be allied with the truth. It might be allied with falsehood. If it's allied with the truth, it's a manifestation of what is being considered traditionally the logos so i think he's confusing a few things it's like here. a wonderful stew of like relativism and objectivism at the same time it's really kind of interesting yeah. to try and parse this out but yeah you go ahead <laughs> the, the first part he's saying all right so we got the spirit of pat flynn and then he's saying that's synonymous with your character and then he lists out a bunch of accidental qualities. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the opposite of what we would do. If I described your spirit, it wouldn't just be accidental qualities. I would instead have to talk about your essential qualities. Yeah. Um, and then he kind of flips to speaking, to, I mean, to take it into a more theological context of angels and demons, right? Spirits th that are either allied with the truth yeah. or, or lies. And then defining people based on, which spirits they're following so at one point he's defining people the essence of who you are your 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 spirit according to accidental qualities of you yeah. and then relational sort of qualities quite existentialist of you vis-a-vis -vis -vis other spirits yeah. right yeah so he seems to have an existentialist sort of strain in him and then yet uh, something else i don't know i don't know if i'd quite call it aristotelian but he starts off uh it seems like a sort of reductive you know, maybe psychological relativism or something like that. But then he starts calling things more noble and you could be actually aligned with the truth or not. So now he seems to be committed to a, a real sort of objective ordering, a teleology of actual goods that you can, you know, either, you know, you can either, uh, you know, dance with the dance or not. Right. And, and, and live that good life or not. You know, th to be fair, you know, Peterson isn't, he's not coming from a, a philosophical, I guess, perspective on this. He's coming from I think he's a psych a psychologist, right? Who's like influenced by Jung. So I under, I, again, I want to be, you know, not like too heavy handed on criticizing a guy who just isn't approaching this, uh, these issues from exactly the same perspective that we are. But I think at the end of the day, that actually should tell you, like show you why philosophy is really important, right? To try and gain conceptual clarity around matters of 
great importance that are difficult to think about. Otherwise, you just uh, can issue a bunch of, you know, sophisticated sounding mush. Uh, that's that's all that really was to me at the end of the day. It was just a bunch of sophisticated sounding mush. I, I hardly even know what to make of it, to be honest. It's amazing how really smart people can be extraordinarily bad at expressing anything philosophically. I think we, when we're kind of in that philosophical space for a while, we kind of take for granted that we use certain language and concepts and we're, we're very careful about the way that we, we, we define words and phrases. And then you hear like a physicist try to describe something with their philosopher hat on and you're like, no, <laughs> I guess it's not good. I, I guess psychologists can fall into the same trap. Yeah, um, I mean, that's really what the discipline of philosophy is all about. It's just about ordered thinking. Right. And, and gaining, you know, as much conceptual clarity as you possibly can so that you can think really well about things. And you sure somebody can have a great degree of specialized knowledge in a particular area, but still not just be a generally well-formed thinker, not able to think with uh, in, in straight channels or consistently from certain starting points uh, to to various consequences, uh, frequently confused categories and concepts and. It, yeah, especially when they are and otherwise clearly Peterson is a very intelligent person. Nobody's denying that. But I think he would very much benefit from, you know, at least a semester, <laughs> at least a semester of some, you know, philosophical training on some of these on some of these issues. Absolutely. The more you're aligned with the truth, the more your spirit is an avatar of the logos. And that's just it's true. It's religiously true, as it turns out, but it's also... Sounds like a little participation theology there, perhaps, right? Yeah, and I mean, I'll give this one a pass. I mean, overall, like, the more you... I mean, the Logos being Christ, the more you, you order yourself towards the truth, ultimately God, yeah, the more you image Christ. The more you the put more... on Christ is, you know, yeah. language sometimes used, right? Mm -hmm. I, I haven't, I haven't heard Avatar used before, but that's interesting, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, no, I have not. But you know what? I'm, I'll go ahead and give him a pass on that yeah. one. We're, we're grading a little bit more lenient. We were Indeed. grading a little harsh at the start. We're, we're easing it up. Yeah, yeah he's, he's charming. Mm -hmm. Indeed. It's technically true. See, I had a debate. So I'm going. To, I'm making that case in the new book. Right. So I had a debate with Richard Dawkins about this. Uh, it was a bit disingenuous for me because he sat with me for a whole show, seemed to enjoy it, thanked me very much for it, and then called me a fool afterwards in some podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> I know you've got a Dawkins, you would never do anything me, like that. Such a sweetie. Um, what I said to Dawkins was because I was raised a Catholic, I was given spiritual guidance for oh, no. several years by Catholic nuns, uh, and I do believe in God. And the reason I said to him is that no human brain can really explain to me or anybody what was there before before nothing. So if you believe in a big bang theory, well, what, what was there before that? Because I don't think any human brain has that power to, un, to explain or answer that question. To me, it makes perfect sense. There should be some being, entity, something which is superior to a human brain. And I'm, I would think that someone with your brain would think that too. So he's he, he he is ex, he is explaining it, right? <laughs> he thinks that no human brain can explain, you know, essentially the beginning of the physical universe. But then he he is offering an explanation. God, right, it, right, yeah. <laughs> I I'm really just confused about his argument. I'm trying to think. There's some premises he's not really laying bare here. Is he saying? Okay, let me see if I can put this together for him. Um, no human brain can <laughs> conceive of what happened before the big bang then i think there's an implication that some brain had to 
understand what happened prior to yeah. the Big Bang. No brain, except for God's brain. Um, again, <laughs> using brain very analogically. Sure. Could sure, sure, sure. conceive. Ergo, the only brain, when we must have a brain, must be God's brain. <laughs> a lot of brain. <laughs> like, like, I, I, I think, know, yeah. Like, well, I mean, just strange. to just to like put it in, I think the most straightforward, uh, you know, manner possible. He's obviously gesturing towards something like the Kalam argument for people who are familiar mm -hmm. with um, mm -hmm. natural theology. And the idea is, it seems to be a general consensus among you know within modern cosmology that the universe did have a beginning some what's the dating now 13.8 billion years ago or something like that um give or take yeah before which it doesn't even make sense to say before which right because mm -hmm. this was the beginning of time and space itself so this, to sure. say before which is just actually itself a conceptual confusion right and then and then the question is um is that magic right is that just a brute fact is that just did it just spring into existence from nothing or is it reasonable to think that there is some sort of, if not temporarily prior, metaphysically prior causal condition for that? All right. And of course, many theists uh, are very much, you know, on board with that type of argument. They think it's actually a very like, you know, um, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, like this is sort of his argument. Right. And he uses both uh, different uh, philosophical uh, supports for the premise that the universe began to exist. And he does, of course, incorporate modern, you know, cosmology and astrophysics as well. And then he just sort of staples that to the, uh, you know, a prior commitment that nothing can begin to exist uh, apart from a cause. And you just kind of eliminate, uh, you know, the field of options of what could actually be the cause of all physical reality. And I think to, if you want to try to avoid silliness or nonsense, you have to start taking seriously the prospect of a non-physical or immaterial reality. So that's how to, I think, make it a little bit more straightforward for people. Um, but maybe that's not what he's getting at all. Maybe I'm just totally confused by the the argument that, that Morgan is trying to make. But that's I'm where my that's where my brain went anyways. Okay. All right. A Kalam style, maybe he's gesturing towards. Okay. And look, that is totally that is a totally fair challenge to pose, of course, right? And you can pose it as a total agnostic. You don't have to put it uh, as a, you know as an argument for theism. You can just say, hey, if if you're an atheist, there seems to be something here that seems a little bit weird. Uh, what sort of explanation do you have for this? And you know, he could just say that he has not found any of those uh, whatever people have given him to be at all adequate or satisfactory or something like that. Yeah, fair enough. The Kalam has never been one of my favorites. It's actually one of my, only the ontological argument do I like less than the Kalam. <laughs> <laughs> like it's not, it's not one, you know, I, I had this uh, shameless plug. I have this book that came out, the best argument for God. Uh, and it does not have the Kalam argument. It is a cumulative case. So I make many different arguments. I do not have the Kalam argument in there. I've, uh, I'm fascinated by it. It's it's an argument that has uh, really been hotly debated recently since, you know, the, the thesis of causal finitism has been advanced by, you know, philosophers like Proust and Coons. But, you know, uh, it's just not one that I have felt was as uh, clear or demonstrative as some of the other more traditional cosmological arguments like the Thomistic arguments. So Agreed. I don't I don't find myself typically using it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, even uh, Craig himself says that it doesn't seem to work unless we have the A theory of time. Yeah. 
and well okay well that's a lot of work to, that's yeah to... look that's you know that's a project and to be fair to him you know he's he's engaged that he's written an enormous mm -hmm. amount defending the a theory of time but um i i guess i would I, you know maybe you could just say something like this it's like hey you know we're talking about metaphysical theories we got i got my theism theory over here you have your atheism theory uh something like the big bang you know something like it seems like the universe had an absolute beginning uh, does that seem more likely on option a or option b and I think it's definitely not implausible to think that we it'd be more likely to expect something like that if God exists. I don't know exactly what I would assign probability wise, but I think that it just is obviously more likely uh, that we would have a discovery like this if God exists than if naturalism were true. And I, I, don't, I think it's not coincidental that most naturalists have, you know, have always posited and still continue to try to posit an eternal universe, right? I think that's obviously a much cleaner fit, a less troublesome fit uh, for a naturalistic theory. Yeah, I agree. I think that's where to where to put this one. It puts a few points on the board for theism, and I think historically, when the the Big Bang theory came out, you know, good old George the Metra, um, it, the Big Bang was a pejorative. Typically by naturalists making fun of it because they thought it sounded too much like Genesis. So historically speaking, it's just true that naturalists preferred an eternal universe and that that was not something they predicted with their theory to find scientifically later. Yeah. And just, I mean, of also historical interest, even though Aquinas uh, rejected the Kalam argument, he didn't think you could philosophically prove the universe had a an absolute beginning in time he thought you could philosophically prove that it had a first fundamental primary cause of course mm -hmm. even if it was eternal that's an important difference uh but he does say that like look if it turns out that the universe did have a beginning in time like game over <laughs> right he's like <laughs> <laughs> so he just he, he actually thinks it's too easy right uh oh, so he, okay. yeah he, he thinks it's better to just to just prove these it's a guide from the more neutral starting point of an eternal universe um but no, sometimes people overlook that in Aquinas, but he, he really did maintain that like, hey, if we could know that the universe had a be beginning, an absolute beginning, uh, then then it really is just game over. Like clearly God exists. Right. Oh, so, cool. So oh, there's there's cool. like there's yeah, like something you can pull true. from Thomas in support of the claw. Most people use him just to like push back against yeah, it. Sure. But but he you do find that in him. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I still making up my mind if we can prove philosophically that the finitude of the past, I like. Depending on the day that I wake up, I have a different opinion. I have That's how I feel about the ontological argument. Oh yeah, well yeah, we we, we should talk to that about, about that one. I, I think I, I I texted you about kind of my take on that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know, still think that we'll talk about it right, now. Well, let's talk about it later. Do another episode. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, sure. All of the above. All right. Well, actually, let's finish this one. We are about a third of the way through, so cool. let's keep, keep going. going. Rock and roll. Because there are questions we simply well, don't ask. Okay. Okay, three things about that. So the first is that's the argument by design that things are so complex and sophisticated that that cries out for. Okay, pause. I don't think like he was creep. doing the argument from design. Uh, I think if anything, he was giving more of a Kalam cosmological argument, which is technically not an argument from design. So I right. think that this kind of talking past each other a bit here yep yeah though so it was confusing so <laughs> yeah, yeah fair enough right like it's hard it's hard for me to make yes yeah, exactly all i got out of that was yeah. brain <laughs> a lot of brain going on a right lot now. of brain a lot of brain all right i'm not a big fan of the argument by design i can see its advantages but it isn't the primary argument as far as i'm concerned so the the big bang proponents have a problem because 
it's a tenet of the Big Bang theory that the laws of physics themselves break down at the point of the singularity, and that would be the point just before the Big Bang. And when you say the laws of physics, the existence of space and time even, is an unknowable prior to the Big Bang, you're basically positing a miracle at the beginning of existence. And so if you get to have your miracle, there's no reason the religious types can't have theirs. You might argue about what the miracle needs to be, and I think that's an argument that has to be had. I don't like the argument by design. I like the argument by conscience better. So the argument by conscience, which is another string of classic theological thought, is that something dwells within you that aligns you with the spirit of reality. And it's the still small voice within that was identified first by the prophet Elijah. And here, and here are Jake and Pat saying, well, here's two famous people talking about does God exist? And they've brought up the maybe kind of the Kalam, which we're not huge fans of. They've brought up the moral argument, which I think both of us are all right with, but we wouldn't put on the top. Yeah, he seems to be more like, like Newman's Newman's yeah. argument from conscience. Aboriginal which vicar is, of Christ. Yeah. yeah, which is not the type of moral argument that I uh, typically countenance, but it's interesting Agreed. to bring that up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, they've named, this is so common. Um, it, you know, before I, I became Catholic, this was all of the argumentation I ever heard. Well, this is this is the catechism, right? The catechism says there's the inner way and the outer way to God, right? The outer way, look at the universe. The inner way, look inside you, moral law, mm -hmm. right? And of course, there's many different formulations of different arguments that could kind of like fit into each of those categories. But that's they're essentially kind of just playing to what the catechism says here, right? Yeah. And I think the moral arguments, I think there's a variety of them. Some of them, I think, can actually be quite strong. Yep. But yeah, what he's laying out right here, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I wouldn't, I, I think I'm with you. That wouldn't be my go-to strongest way to formulate it. I'm not a specialist in the argument from conscience if he is thinking it uh, like the way that Newman uh, develops mm -hmm. it. I know that there's a paper from uh, uh, philosopher Logan Paul Gage on it. Um, so people might want to look at that. I think he defends it. So it might be it might be worth checking that out if you want to put it in the show notes. Uh, I'm, I'm also with you in the sense that I think most oral moral arguments are poorly formulated. I try to formulate what I think is the uh, the best moral argument and an ultimately successful one uh, in in my book, the best argument for God. But it's really a matter of uh, it's, it's a more extensive argument concerning theory comparison and sort of assuming a moral realism and, and asking what wider worldview paradigm can help best explain moral realism if we are committed to that and i make the cumulative case for the classical traditional you know broadly aristotelian uh theistic position mm -hmm. yeah i think again kind of like the kalam might not be a slam dunk but it's points theism for sure yeah i mean for sure right so i mean like just to people always get so agitated when you say that atheism entails nihilism because like, well, haven't you read this guy, this guy? Yes. Yes, I have. Trust me. I've read them. I have read them. And I think that they all fail, right? I've, I've read the various naturalistic accounts of trying, of course I have, right? This is what I do, right? <laughs> this is literally what I do, right? I'm not, in, I'm not nearly uh, as much of the ignorant savage as I look. Um, <laughs> And if you've read my work, you'll see that I engage with them, right? I engage with the various uh, attempts from naturalists, whether they're trying to bring in elements of Platonism or strong emergence or whatever to try and secure objective morality. But I think like the, the very on the face, 
right, uh, direction of atheism is obviously nihilism, right? So atheism, if people aren't familiar, or naturalism is run by the hypothesis of indifference, where fundamental reality is, it's not aiming at anything, it's neither benevolent or malevolent, it's not minded. Naturalism is committed to source physicalism, that whatever else the mental world is, it is, it's late and local, it is caused, it is determined by the physical world. These are the commitments of naturalism, right? And that if you are trying to uh, afford naturalism any sort of epistemic superiority in terms of its, you know, uh, explanatory oomph, uh, then you're really essentially committed to a combinatorial uh, method of explanation. Essentially, you got to try to explain everything reductively through atomic and evolutionary theory, right? So where does that lead with morality? It quite obviously leads to the idea that whatever else our moral beliefs, attitudes, dispositions are, are just sort of things that were helpful for us to um, avoid bears and do stuff in the bedroom, right? That is the clean, natural, I would argue, inevitable direction of, of a naturalistic hypothesis that isn't arbitrarily complicated to high heaven, right? Which, of course, is a huge theoretical vice. And this is why so many naturalists have always been moral anti-realists. They've been nihilists. They've been eliminativists on this front because this is clearly what the theory uh, naturally predicts. And to escape that, you have to sort of put things in a naturalist ontology that are brute, that don't fit. And I, and as I argue in my book, this is why my argument is a bit more complicated, really sort of uh, render that sort of that, that theory no longer plausible because of how much you've had to stitch into it, all these sort of adjunct hypotheses, right? It's no longer a serious like robust metaphysical alternative at that point. That's the a sketch of how to, I think, make a proper moral argument. Of course, there's a lot of details that were glossed over there. Yeah, I think part of what you were referencing there, and I'm certainly going to plug, is in your section on evil, you're talking about what would the naturalist predict uh, philosophy of mind-wise, and what would the qualia be associated with, say, pain, or we could add with moral facts, and why would they posit that there be a match between the qualia of a given experience, be it moral or suffering, et cetera, and what happens with the function of the organization and of the organism in response? That, I think, was a very nuanced point. Yes. Well, thank you. I'd be the last person to disagree <laughs> with that on this mutual admiration society podcast. But um, yeah, right. Yeah. So qualia, you know, this is the sort of uh, experiential dimension. I argue that naturalism has a serious explanatory problem here because it, it can't answer either how it could emerge, right? How do you get this sort of this feature of reality that is just like categorically different from that which it is supposedly emergent from, right? That this 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 experiential dimension that is inherently teleological, uh, uh, unified, right? It's not disparate. Uh, all these different features that are just everything that the sort of reductive physicalist base is not, right? How do you traverse that enormous qualitative gap? And I argue this is an in-principle problem that the naturalist has not, is really not up to, to, uh, up to task for explaining. But even if you could jump over that gap, you have no explanation for why it would happen, right? Because if you're committed to this, you know, these kind of fundamental aspects of naturalism, like source physicalism, it's hard to see how you don't veer immediately into epiphenomenalism where whatever else the mental life is, the qualitative dimension, it's sort of this effective residue that floats atop all the sort of mindless physical actors underneath, you know, atoms swirling or whatever you want to call it, right? It's the physical stuff that is, you know, 
causal or responsible. It's the it's the it's the the physical mechanisms underneath that get selected for uh, in terms of their utility for survival. The experiential dimension makes no difference. It has no causal downward or backwards, however you want to describe it, causal influence. So it doesn't matter that it's there at all. And it doesn't matter what the experiential dimension actually is, right? It could be literally anything. It just doesn't. So like, these are huge explanatory problems and question marks uh, that emerge when you actually get kind of deep into the weeds. The problem is people don't actually get deep into the weeds with these theories. So they might have the impression that there's far less serious explanatory issues from a naturalist perspective than there actually are. And part of what I try to show in my book is, oh, no, there's major explanatory issues here that naturalism faces that theism definitely does not. And then I also tie those considerations into a challenge for naturalism to make sense of suffering, because obviously, you know, suffering qualia, the what it is likeness to suffer, uh, is itself, you know, you know, a huge question mark of why exactly that is there? What sort of functional purpose does this possibly serve? Why does it need to have the qualitative aspects that it actually has? It could have had any qualitative aspect. And so long as, you know, our joints are getting into the right place by the mindless physical act interactions underneath, it doesn't matter what the feeling is like. So now again, we don't actually have a good explanation. I argue with a lot more detail, of course, in my book, uh, for even suffering, right? Uh, suffering at all or the particular distribution of suffering from a naturalistic worldview. So let's pretend that Jordan Peterson read your book and is leaning on your argumentation there and is saying, listen, philosophy or uh, psychology works. It causes real changes. Therefore, we can't posit that there's just the 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 foam on top of the ocean of <laughs> the foam, yeah right. you know uh, on top of the ocean of physical interactions below. It's just this epiphenomenal right. mm -hmm. non-causal stuff. Well, no, if we actually interact with that stuff via psychology, and we change the the ways that people view things, we change the qualia that people have in response to a given situation. Right, that's the whole process of psychology is that reframing reordering recontextualizing well that does have real effects yeah i agree so we got to choose do we want to toss out all of psychology because that's what we would have to do if we take a strict naturalistic reading of what's going on with us or just, or, yeah or just not be able to make heads or tails of it, right of it. yeah and and i say in my book look i think epiphenomenalism is about as is the most self-evidently false position there could possibly be right there's no need to be coy about it i mean it's clearly preposterous right that my desires my feels if you will clearly have uh, at least some influence on the types of things that i do and the type of person i become and stuff like that right so if you're if you have a theory that is telling me otherwise then like all the worse for that theory, my friend. Right. Um, so I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I would actually say, yeah, no, that's that's itself another piece of evidence that we have to factor into our considerations of of whether we think that this 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 wider theory of naturalism is true. And I think, of course, it, it points very strongly against it. I mean, just form an form an intention in your mind. Right. I form an intention of a blue square. And now I'm going to decide to rotate the blue square in my mind. That's amazing, right? That's really simple, but that's amazing. Uh, but that that is just all pure, absolute coincidence, forming that intention and then actually doing it because of entirely mindless physical actors underneath. Tell me how in the hell that makes sense at all, right? I mean, this is just, it, it is a ludicrous, it is a, <laughs> I don't mean to be rude, but it's a ludicrous theory, right? And I think a lot of naturalists recognize that it's, that it's ludicrous. They just sort of feel like they're forced to bite the bullet. Now, of course, not all naturalists, 
think they're stuck with epiphenomenalism. They think that there are alternatives. I and I and I say that even if you adopt certain alternatives like functionalism or whatever, there's still a major structural issue where you're not going to escape my arguments anyway. So I do consider those possible outs for people who are who are already gearing up the objection. Well, have you read this person? Have you read that person? Yes. Yes, I have. Pat has read everything. I do try to read <laughs> I do try <laughs> as much as I can. Right. So, yeah, I mean, like those, that's all technical stuff. Right. Um, but that's these these are the fundamental issues like these are. This is this is to do serious philosophy and really to try and engage in, in worldview comparison. These are the the, the types of the, the tough in the weeds things that you need to really try to think about. And I think, of course, if you can have a worldview that gives you a sort of substance first worldview where we can make sense of, uh, you know, we don't have to deny that there's the physical aspect of us. Uh, but we can make sense of how the physical and the mental are aspects of one in the same reality. Uh, and I think there's. Uh, great theistic resources for doing that and i you know make my endorsements in in the book you know you know i'm kind of coming from just a generally aristotelian perspective on all this stuff cool cool well back to jordan let's see what he has to do it. Mm -hmm. and it was part of a transformation in the religious viewpoint in historical terms that moved the notion of god from something like baal b-a-l b-a-b-a-a-l a nature god the god of storms and earthquakes of of, of what would you say remarkable and awe-inspiring natural phenomena to the voice within that can if you attend to it align you with the structure of reality itself that internal voice being a manifestation of god and i think that's an extremely powerful argument and i think it's right i gotta pause it right here because i have a love-hate and relationship with with this kind of framing um, I think a lot of people project on the past this idea that every natural phenomenon everybody ever always thought was some type of God. And I just think that's manifestly false. It's so historically ignorant. Yeah, I agree. So that's wrong. However, the part that I do agree with is I've argued in podcasts and elsewhere that um, I think that uh, following Thomas Aquinas, angels have a role in governance of nature. Indeed. And it seems to me that we have scriptural and even philosophical evidence that Satan was the governor of nature, possibly particularly animals. Yeah. I lay out 13 reasons why in some podcasts, and I think I forgot all, but maybe four off the top of my head. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, mind, happen, right? yeah. that does actually make sense of some of this narrative. We have um, people are, are offering some type of spirit of nature um sacrifices and this is always set up against the worship of the one true god which transcends nature um yeah okay that sounds like what we get in in genesis and exodus that's generally biblically correct yeah no i i totally agree so i i also take umbrage at the statement um it's really one of just pure chronological condescension that everybody was just like punting to some lowercase g god for anything that happened in nature. And this is just extremely ignorant. I mean, you go back to any of the major thinkers, Aquinas included, they're constantly giving natural explanations for things, right? Constantly. Um, now, we often look back and realize that their natural explanations were wrong in many cases, but so what? They were open to them being wrong. Mm -hmm. they, they totally knew that these were provisional. But at the same time, there is this more nuanced perspective. And I agree. I think that it's right. And I think there's, uh, I indeed even make a, a bit of a philosophical case for this, or at least motivate it philosophically in my book, that creation is mediated through these higher spiritual entities. It's creation is mediated through the angels, or in, in some cases, you know, those, those angels fell, and then you can kind of, 
you know, draw out some potential consequences of what that might have for creation as well. But that doesn't negate the natural or physical causes or influences at all. It just means that there's there could be more at play here than immediately meets the eye. That's it. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I mean, even in the cases where it's like Zeus, he's throwing lightning bolts. I would have to see the evidence to show that every time a lightning bolt fell, they thought it was Zeus. It seems to me that even in a lot of those pagan myths, it's that they have the option of using pre-existing physical forces. It's not that they have to be like real-time shooting every single bolt of lightning. You know, you read stories with Poseidon. Most of the time, they're just chilling on the sea. Oh, it's kind of windy today, whatever. Um, it's only occasionally that they think that like the god of the sea is acting on the sea to say destroy them or to help them. Well, what is it uh, people like to bring up the Genesis account, right? Where you both get a miraculous explanation and a natural explanation, right? Uh, God did it, but the wind also did it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that this, at least at the highest level, goes to show that we're not talking about competitive causes here. We're talking about different orders of causality. Uh, you have, of course, God is a sort of necessary transcendent cause, which enables all the sort of that vast interactive system of nature and, of course, orders it providentially right so these things this i mean gets into some complicated issues with, with miracles of how we should even think about miracles i think what a lot of times when people talk about miracles it's not technically a miracle because it's within the the power of uh, of nature to produce something right but it could just be so highly improbable that yeah people kind of loosely use the, the term miracle because it's just such an obvious act of god's specific uh, god's specific providence or something like that whereas the miracle usually refers to you know something going beyond the natural capabilities or powers or something like a, like the resurrection for example mm -hmm. right so yeah <laughs> and i'll tell you something about dawkins work that's very interesting mm -hmm. so dawkins has pointed out that an organism has to be a microcosm of its environment in order to survive and i would say the con the voice of conscience within us is the most unerring manifestation of the microcosm within and i think you can make an extraordinarily powerful I really don't know what he's saying there. Pat, do you? No, just keep <laughs> Cool, let's keep going. Keep going. Yep. Logical case for that. <laughs> and I've done that in this new book. So I think Dawkins' argument, I think Dawkins' argument invalidates his his epistemology. Yeah, I agree. I really believe that. Huh. Well, what do you think? I mean, you, you've had... Wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I would need that. I would what... need that tape. We <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I actually do know what Dawkins' argument is that he's referencing. And that is, he says that if you took a, that if an alien just like grabbed a seagull and took him out of the spaceship, checked out this little critter, he could actually determine a lot about his environment. He could figure out, well, okay, if he's going to fly with wings of this shape and with muscles of, of this density, et cetera, then what would the, um, what would the thickness of his atmosphere be? You know, they could actually figure that out. Sure, so sure. in that sense, he's a microcosm of his environment. They could look at his eyes and figure out what are the visible spectrums of light that would be useful to this year's seagull. Hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure how Jordan Peterson's jumping from the fact that we have an innate moral sense to to what? To, to God? It yeah, that, like, that is, I, I mean, there's a couple of huge leaps there, right? I mean, obviously the naturalist can just try to give a reductive eliminativist you know, explaining away explanation of sure. that of that moral sense, right? They don't have to accept his leap that it's aligning us to a, a greater envir theological environment, right? Of course, they mm -hmm. would push back on that. But then he says it undercuts his epistemology. That's another 
I mean, epistemology concerns theories of knowledge, right? Um, I don't know exactly what epistemology explicitly Dawkins holds. If any, I would imagine he's probably broadly aligned with some sort of scientism. So that that is obviously an argument that would stand in need of some further support as well. <laughs> agreed, agreed. And when Jordan comes on our our one of our podcasts, uh, he can explain exactly what he meant. But until then, we're going to have to keep. Going. Hey, it sounds sounds high high thinking though, doesn't it? Does sounds it? sophisticated, right? Yeah, yeah, I bet a lot of people are nodding their heads like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. There goes his epistemology. Take that Dawkins. <laughs> there goes his epistemology. Now, what are you going to have for dinner? <laughs> you have face the prospect of potentially dying and in those moments yeah. in those moments what have you felt and what do you think happens to you if you do die or you had died what what did you imagine might happen to you well i, I had lots of moments moments years in the last few years where dying would have been an absolute relief and had that been accompanied by the complete cessation of my being I would have been perfectly content with that. There are things that are far worse than dying. So if you're only terrified of dying, you've hardly begun to plumb the depths of existential catastrophe. (laughs) (laughs) You just don't have an imagination. What could be worse than dying? Being a prison guard at Auschwitz? But you'd still be alive, even if you're witnessing (laughs) horror. It's not death that the... Oh, no, I'm thinking perpetrating it. Right. All right. Let's 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 pause it there. So I, I definitely agree with um, Peterson on this one, right? As oh, I think 100%. every every Christian should, right? Uh, it's not death that is the the worst thing, right? Uh, but dying unwell in an unwell mm-hmm. state is obviously far worse than death. So uh, I don't think any, you know, we might disagree on certain specifics here. Um, I don't happen to in this instance, but I think he's right on the money that there are there are many things worse than death. Hundred percent, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. No, he's right about this one. Being an Auschwitz guard, how about being an Auschwitz guard who really enjoyed his job? <laughs> now, now, this is cool because I, most people would jump to, "What about being a prisoner in Auschwitz?" But I like that Peterson recognizes that there's a certain harm to you, a type of dysfunction. Yeah, like this um, is this is the one to really be afraid of, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and from a Christian perspective, that is absolutely correct. Right? That's true. Right. I, so I like that. I think that's pretty cool. That's, yes, like this is I think this is out. his best point so far. This is good. hundred mm-hmm. percent. How about that? That's worse than death. As far as I'm concerned. Right. I mean that. No, no, I, I see that. That's yeah, hell, man. No, I think he convinced yeah. him too. I think, he, I think he. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have a pet theory about hell. I don't know if I've ever run it past you, but, um, you know, the parable where Jesus talks about the servant who has the um the master and the her, her, and he owes this master an incredible debt and then the master forgives the servant he's running along happy-go-lucky and then he sees somebody who owes him a much smaller debt and he like beats the crap out of him and chokes him and says pay me back my money mm-hmm. then when it gets back to the, to the one master who forgave it he's like oh all of that's coming back on you forget that i forgave that debt you are totally back um in debt up to your eyeballs I think that what that could be pointing to, and I'm not going to hang my hat on this, is something about hell. Now, yeah, that was happening on Earth, but I think that it shows that the way that we avoid hell, that eternal debt, is by, many things included, but one of the things is by relinquishing the, the debts of others so that ours itself will be relinquished. That's what we 
pray yeah, the Lord's yeah, Prayer, right? Yeah, yeah, for so, sure. So if we kind of flip that on its head, if that's how you get to heaven, what might we retain in hell? What if we retained the claim to extract out of others the debts they owe us? Hmm. You know, often in the tradition, it said that people choose hell. And that sounds pretty insane until you look around, you find people are choosing hell. Right, right, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that Satan could offer is something he offers on earth and says, well, if you come to hell, you can, you know, get back what, what you're owed. You can take vengeance on other people. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, all the people, whoever, you know, bullied you or this or that, you can give them justice. What do you think about that? And And yeah, there's a sense that, if you're the person who goes down to hell and not only are you tormented, but you become the tormentor of others. And it's just this giant mosh pit of servants <laughs> strangling each other. So All right. Yeah. That's, that's... Owed, well then, yeah, that's kind of what Jordan Peterson's saying. You're, you're in Auschwitz, but you're a prisoner and the prison guard. That seems like the, absolute yeah, I imagine version. he would, I imagine he would be nodding his head in agreement with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah, that's that's that that should have been in, you should have given that one to Dante if you had the chance. Right. Well, you know, mm-hmm. Jordan Peterson, when I rewrite Dante's in, Inferno for, you know, a, a modern American audience, I'm going to have Jordan Peterson in the place of Virgil. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that that could be a very interesting read. <laughs> Wouldn't it be like, well, guys, I didn't quite make it. I didn't have these. <laughs> virtues that came from supernatural grace but you know what i did a damn good job here on earth so i'm in the good place oh well the best part of hell that i could have got to and let me give you a tour because well frankly you're gonna want to know oh man, man. i bet yeah. you the listeners are sick of my jordan peterson impression by now which so means you just have to keep doing it yeah exactly yeah practice makes perfect guys oh yeah i agree mm-hmm. But do you think there so, is? But do you so, think there's an actual hell, Jordan? Is there? Is there somewhere that people like that go to, which is hell? Oh, definitely. Now, what what relationship that has to what happens to you when you die? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think well, definitely, but I don't know. <laughs> I know. Right? I love. I wish I could use the word definitely like that. I feel like I could. I could slip out of so many more arguments. What's truly beyond our ken, let's say. I don't think we understand consciousness at all. We don't understand time. We don't understand the relationship between finitude and and the infinite landscape that surrounds us. That's all a great mystery. And I tend to leave that alone because I try not to speak about things that I can't speak about. Man, if I tried to not speak about things I can't speak about, I wouldn't have a podcast, Pat. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah, right. Wild. But hey, good for him. Good for him. Though I would invite him to go ahead and check out some of the things which people do know about consciousness and time, et cetera. I think oftentimes people imagine that there just aren't answers or that all answers mm-hmm. are equally probable, but he might be surprised what he finds out. The one thing that surprises me um, about Peterson is he's obviously a very intelligent man and he's intellectually curious. I mean, but he's been around a lot of philosophers and theologians. So I'm just surprised, I guess, after all this time that he hasn't, you know, maybe he has been looking into these issues a bit more, but he seems to kind of fundamentally hold the same slippery salmon type of response that he always has. So I'm just a little bit surprised that uh, I guess I haven't seen any more development um, in th- of his thought on, on these matters. Cause they've been coming up for a long time, you know, for Peterson. 
Totally. So like if, the, like if the, I was in, in this position to interview and somebody asked me these questions and I just didn't have what I thought were good answers, like I would immediately go hitting the books. You know what I mean? Right. Mm, I'm just, mm, but mm. I don't know. Maybe he's a different type of person than me. Maybe he doesn't feel like, uh, I don't know. I'm pretty OCD. Like if there's a big question, I don't have an answer to like, man, I will just, I'll put on that pot of coffee, my friend. I'll stay up all night. <laughs> Heck yeah. Well, listeners, if, um, if you have a Twitter, tweet at jordan peterson a link to this interview and I, I i think i speak for pat here he is invited on either of our podcasts so that we can chat about the uh the the reality of such things and yeah, uh, it'd be a delight. yeah you know what maybe these other philosophers are letting you down jordan we won't let you down isn't that right pat we will not let you down and we won't let you slip and slide around no no more salmon life for you all right let's keep going does hell exist it's like study history and see if you can figure it out for yourself i mean does, does heaven there's exist? nothing there's nothing that's more obvious than that hell <laughs> i love that uh, a pause. I, I love that you know peterson is giving these at least very sophisticated sounding high level abstract responses and piers morgan is like he sounds like my three-year-old Mm -hmm. i mean like (laughs) in a good way just no in a good way like just super direct straight to the point very simple but very profound questions and i do not mean that as an insult i think children ask the best philosophical and theological questions because they're just so direct and to the point i just love the i just had to comment on like the the great chasm between (laughs) of discourse here right this is very funny (laughs) and it was hell right but so you're talking about hell on earth but do you believe there's a hell after death uh, like i said i i i can't i can't i don't speculate about such things i don't that's where my ignorance finds its what would you say that's where my knowledge finds its limit i'm i'm concerned enough about what i'm doing right now right here and and leaving the rest of that and you know i'm so i have to leave it at that the hell that i see as a potential on earth is sufficient as a deterrent and it's of, of sufficient reality you know you can ask well is it eternal well i would say well look all totalitarian states are variants on a theme let's say and that theme persists all archetypal stories are eternal everything that happened in the bible happened and is happening and will continue to happen forever it's part of the eternal human story it's hyper real and, and heaven and hell are part of that what that means in the final analysis, I don't know. I mean, you asked, I think you asked in there, you know, hell is real, is heaven real? It's like, well, heaven is as far away from hell as you can get. That's hmm. a good way of thinking about right. it. Um, I've spent my whole life trying to determine how you get as far away from being a camp guard at Auschwitz who enjoys his job as possible. And one of the things, one of the things I've realized in recent years, for example, is that you are far from that if you're engaging in your interactions with the world in the spirit of voluntary play. Now, this is an interesting one here. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much inclined to agree. I mean, plenty of theologians have pointed out that worship is a type of play. It's something that is done not for the sake of something else, but just because it's good in and of itself. Yeah, so yeah of course. Right. Mm-hmm. If we're defining play in that way, something that's good in and of itself to do that doesn't necessarily need a purpose extrinsic to it, it's just we do it because it's good. Right. Then, yeah, that is the opposite of, of tyranny. 
um, that's kind of, yeah, that's a, that's certainly a mode of human flourishing. Yeah. Right. And of course the, the traditional understanding of, of freedom, especially for Catholics is the idea of freedom for excellence. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, to, to live the good life is to be literally the most free that you can possibly be as a human being. And for Christians, for Catholics, the good life is ultimately determined by what happens in the next life. Um, so I, I do appreciate, you know, uh, I always appreciate, you know, people just being honest about where their sort of limits on knowledge are. I think that's that's good. You know, don't pretend to know more than you do. But again, I think eschatology, the afterlife is something that is really important to think about, right? Because it's mm -hmm. to live the good life. You have to, again, if you're kind of traditional in your ethics, you have to ask, well, for what? Okay, well, we're human beings. So what is the good life for us? Now we're into philosophical anthropology. What sort of thing are we? Are we the sort of thing that just completely perishes, you know, with our physical body? We just go out of existence entirely. Or are we something, as many philosophers have held, uh, that in some sense, even if in an incomplete sense, temporarily persists beyond bodily death? Uh, and that is not an insignificant thing to consider. Because if there is something beyond this life, that will bear significantly, the considerations about that will bear significantly upon what the good life, what the ultimate end for us actually is. So this is this is all old stuff. But yeah, like ethics, the study of the good life is deeply tied with philosophical anthropology, the nature of the human being. And that is deeply tied with greater metaphysical perspectives, the fundamental nature of reality. And I don't think these questions um are just are impossible to answer i think i think I, I think they're difficult at times but i think you can think long hard and well about them and come to some very solid conclusions about the immortality of the human person the true good life is friendship with god indeed the the quite real possibility of hell of eternal separation from god because of a type of live life that you live uh here and now of course a life of mortal sin which hard to see how being a, you know a guard at auschwitz who enjoys the profession wouldn't meet the conditions for that right so like his examples are good i just think I, I would invite um i would invite him to look you know look a little bit further and while i appreciate the you know the intellectual humility and, and modesty don't don't let you know just because you're like oh look my limits on knowledge are here right now that doesn't mean you have to stop right uh it's one thing to to be intellectually humble and, and modest but it's another thing to just like be lazy Right. Totally. Like I, I've always been like, OK, this is where I'm at right now, but I want to see if I can go further. Right. Can I go further? Let's try. And at least a lot of times I, I think I have been able to go further. You know what I mean? So don't let your current limits, you know, accept them as contingent limitations. Right. Not not necessary limitations. Keep pushing. Keep trying to figure things out. Mm -hmm. Totally. I can't deadlift 500 pounds yet, but that doesn't mean I'm not. Yeah, I wouldn't want to try. You know, I wouldn't want to work up and get stronger. I think the same true when we're dealing with our, our our limits and knowledge you know all right well there's a worthy goal go after it take a few steps you might be surprised how strong you get yeah and like even if you don't get you know definite answers to hard problems i mean it's almost impossible to see how you won't be enriched in various ways just by the by the mere pursuit right maybe you don't get that 500 pound deadlift but i don't know you got the 450 right and uh got a lot stronger and more muscular in the process still pretty good right than not trying at all mm-hmm what do you think about the connection between play, having fun, and uh, and seeking the truth? What do you what do you find about that? Yeah, boy, that's that's good. Um, 
is philosophy is truth seeking play for me um i don't know uh i mean sometimes sometimes it is i think it is sometimes at its best uh like i feel like when we're talking jake and we're having fun there's there's something very playful about it but we're also you know playing towards the truth if that makes sense mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. And I love that. So I think that there's, I think this isn't something I've ever thought about to right now. This is a good question. Uh, so I think that that can be the case. Uh, but then there's other times, you know, just trying to work through various research projects. Like it feels more like work than anything ever has. Sure. You know what I mean? You know, I, I've, for pretty much every single interview I've ever done on this podcast, I look into the person a little bit, try to gauge their personality. And then either at the introduction or directly prior to the introduction, I purposefully put something out that does two things. One, it gives out some type of play signal. And the other one, I want it to make them feel slightly uncomfortable or put on the back foot. And I have a very purposeful reason for this. I used to um, interview to hire people when I probably interviewed 350, 400 people. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something that I always did. Because if you get those play signals at the beginning, then people are way more open, way more free, way more comfortable and way more honest. And if you give them just just enough uncomfortability at the start, combined with that play signal, it makes them think, okay, kind of ramp up the stress, but it goes from this is stressful to this is exciting and fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you just hit that right, then things go great. That's, that's what invites the magic. Yeah, exactly. That's, true. that's yeah. what invites the magic. So it's really hard to kind of guess where you're going to land that because you don't want to go too far and make somebody aggravated. No, you do want to like... make people feel like, well, that was weird, but I got through it. Yeah. And, hey, he's having fun. I'm having yeah. fun. And then it makes people totally relaxed thereafter yeah, because don't... they felt like they already went through something tough because there's always that what's going to hit me when this person interviews me. So if Mm -hmm. you hit somebody with something right off the bat that kind of takes them off guard, then they feel like I already made it through. And then everything gets better. One of the the few interviews that I feel like I just just had crumble in front of me are ones where the person refused to kind of engage in that play. Oh, yeah. And just would not give any type of play signals. And sure enough, I can tell from there that things are just going to go to hell in a handbasket. (laughs) <laughs> yes some people are a little stiff sometimes this is the nature of podcasting you know and people can uh i don't know i i guess i take it for granted i've just been doing this for so long you know just mm-hmm. podcasting and content production and and all this that it just is i forget that like sometimes it's the first time anybody's ever been on a podcast and there's actually a thing called nerves that people can uh, have about I'm, it you know what i mean I'm, like i just completely forget that that's a reality for many people right or and you don't, and you don't want to be like the guy. Have you seen the movie Whiplash, by the way? No. Oh, dude, it's such a good movie with J.K. Simmons. It's funny because he's the extreme that you're trying to avoid. He starts out playful, but then he just turns into an absolute tyrant. He's a music oh, instructor. Terrible. Yeah, it, I mean, it's phenomenally well acted. Not not a movie for children, uh, but it's even if you're not into music, it's a really good, powerful drama. So go 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 watch it after this. Well, let's keep uh, let's keep going a bit. I think overall, I'm in agreement at least with uh, his connection between play, truth, etc. Let's see if he keeps going. You know, and we're playing during this conversation, and Joe Rogan plays on his podcast all the time. And if you're in a playful state with your wife, your marriage is optimized. And 
the state of play is the opposite of tyranny. And now that's why it says in the Gospels that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like a little child. So, Okay, there's more ways to read that than that, Jordan, but I won't say that's entirely wrong. We're also called to be wise and discerning. Yes, yes, definitely. And, you know, humble, um, open, those things too. But okay, let's keep going. You want to reinstate that that open-eyed, wide-eyed acceptance of life that is the precursor to voluntary play. You want to develop your character to the point where that's part and parcel of your life on an ongoing basis. And that's allowing that spirit of the logos to inhabit you. That's another way of thinking about it. And you can, you can certainly aid that with prayer. You know, people don't understand. People think of God as the joke is a cosmic butler. You pray to have your wishes granted. It's like, he's not a genie. You want to pr- you want to pray? It's like, pray about your stupidity. Here's a prayer that'll work for sure. You want to see if prayer works? Here's one. This will work. Sit on the edge of your bed. Ask yourself, what bloody stupid thing do I continue to do that's making my life more miserable than it has to be and everyone else's life around me that I could give up, that I would give up? And But you have to really want the answer. So you open yourself. <laughs> we have our first caller today. I know, right? <laughs> Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Podcast Caller. You Welcome are the, the podcast. Here. What do you think about <laughs> Dr. Jordan Peterson and his interview? Does God exist? Um, You're yeah. on the air. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it broke through. Do not disturb. I don't know. Maybe somebody's like dead on the side of the road. I'm sure they're fine. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah I don't know. What do you think about that, Pat? Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's all fine. Um, I don't. I don't know if I, yeah, like one could, one could sit here and be extremely nitpicky, but I, I don't want to be unfair. Right. Agreed. Um, Agreed. We go like, for like, like, again, like coming from somebody who's, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know how long he's been a psychologist and working with people on the couch or whatever. Um, I think that's good. I think it's like just good practical advice, good practical living advice. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Is and that's, and that's, I think that's why Peterson has always resonated with people, especially young men. You feel so confused in culture is like, here's a guy who's famous for saying, hey, you know, clean up your room, pet cats, uh, eat healthy and like just like basic, good common sense rules for just getting your life in order. And I think when he, he gives those, he's he's yeah, he's he's often at his best. Of course, you know, we might want a richer, a wider theological perspective. But hey, you know, everyone everyone could use some just good old good old fashioned instructions from dad, you know? Yeah, totally. I think there's plenty more types of prayer, prayers of Thanksgiving, prayers, this prayers, that, but he's not entirely wrong that we're, you know, we should offer those things to God. We should say, Hey, here's the place where I'm failing. And guess what? I'm going to pair this prayer with an actual intention for action. Yep. That's fair. hundred percent. Yeah. It's great. It's a great prayer. Yeah. Revelation. You'll get an answer. It won't be one you want. That's how you'll know it's true. <laughs> but if you act There's on really it, something to that, but yeah, sometimes you do get what you want. Yeah, that's that's what you do. Like in a metaphysical sense, the Christian insistence that you should be aware of your sins, you know, which is in sense an, in this sense an existential burden, is also the idea that you should attend to your own inadequacies and admit to them, because in doing so, you open up the possibility that something better can make itself manifest within you. And there's no doubt that that's the case. That's for sure. That's true. But you have to do it in humility. 
you have to be looking. That's why you're supposed to take the moat out of your own eye instead of worrying about the beam in your neighbor's eye. It's like <laughs> there's something about you that's stupid you can fix, yeah. and God will tell you what it is if you want him to, <laughs> so to speak. There you go. All right. So that, that's that's the whole section we were reviewing there. Wow, um, we got through it. Great. We did it, man. We did it. Overall advice for Jordan Peterson. I got I got something in mind. I want to see what you have uh, off the top of your head. Yeah, I just want to reiterate that again. Uh, in you know, in general, uh, I don't I don't follow him very closely. Obviously, he's in the news a lot, and he's quite a popular figure. But I've I've never followed him very closely. But what I've seen, I think he's you know he's uh, really trying to help young men. Uh, find meaning and purpose and order and, and structure. And I appreciate that, of course. Now, I think that um, there's there are further, uh, more important ultimate steps to take. But the funny thing about Peterson is he literally has seemed to be, like, I know he is because people have emailed me. He's like the bridge to Catholic, like Catholicism specifically for a lot of people sure. from new atheism. People are like, oh, I was all about Sam Harris. Then, you know, I saw a chat with him and Jordan Peterson. I followed Jordan Peterson. And then Peterson started hanging around with like Bishop Robert Barron and I started getting in all this Catholic stuff and now I'm getting confirmed. You know, that is, that seems to not be in like an infrequent occurrence, right? That he, and you know, maybe it's because he's still largely secular that like young men are willing to kind of like listen to him uh, as, as a way out of their, I think their obvious nihilism. Right. Um, and in in the sense that they aren't like immediately off put uh, because of all the biases they have against religion. If somebody was like outwardly or, or directly, you know, preaching the gospel or something like that, which I think is a great thing to do, by the way. Um, but one could see why this would be the case. And then, you know, Peterson essentially kind of softens them up. You know, he's got all these Bible lectures and, you know, at least has whatever you know, theological issues one might raise, at least in the general sense, he's getting people to realize that the Bible just isn't this you know, crude, barbaric thing that the new atheists have made it out to be. And that arouses curiosity and openness, I think, among many people, especially young men, to then at least begin considering seriously the religious question. Uh, so I appreciate all that. I think that's a great and wonderful thing. Of course, I would just love and pray that Peterson himself goes further. And in fact, my understanding, if I remember the headlines, is I think his wife is currently an RCIA. I heard that. Yeah. So, you know, thanks be to God. So, uh, I mean, I don't know what that means for Dr. Peterson himself, but we'll be praying for him that he'll be following his, his wife here, hopefully very soon. Totally. Throw some prayers up for the guy. He's doing good work. Oh, you of know, course. Of course. Yeah. To take the kind of typological Jungian uh, turn here, I just did a an episode on the book of Jonah. And just like the book of Jonah, the first part of the episode is pretty terrible, but it, it does get better if you can make it through. <laughs> but one of the things that I pointed out, there, <laughs> I re-listened to it and I'm like, oh, my. God. Oh, man, never re-listen to your own never stuff. It just it, makes you want to slam your head through a piece of drywall. Right. Yes, yeah. Nothing's worse. But the end of it, I'm like, all right. It's, it's, ah, you pulled it's it safe, together a little. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things that um, that was in there that I realized is Jonah starts out in this mountainous area. And like Augustine, whenever he reads anything in scripture with a mountain, he reads that as great men and anything with a sea, he takes as the world. So he starts out Jonah in this land of great men. Yeah. Then he looks down at Joppa and Joppa means beautiful. So something just attracts his eye and it's said to be a land of plains. So it's a place that just seems beautiful, enticing, interesting, fun, but it doesn't actually have anybody terribly great there. 
And then from there, he goes off to uh, Tarshish, which means joy. So he's just seeking joy, and he doesn't care about all the dangers that are there. Sure. And then once he gets on the boat, he's he's going along the storm. You know, you know the story. But something interesting happens is he goes down to the belly of the ship. So he's kind of reduced to this juvenile state, just kind of like hiding in the nice warm belly of the ship while the men are up on deck fighting the storm. And then the captain of the ship comes down to him and says, hey, wake up and call on your God. At which point he actually responds, comes up on the deck, seems to practice the theological virtues, jumps slash is helped overboard. And it says he goes down into the depths and sees the roots of the mountains. Hmm. So the way I'm reading that is this is a pretty standard story for a lot of young men that you come out of a culture that may be religious. You know, some great men. This is the land of mountains. You go off to college and then it's just playtime, party time. Hmm. What's easy? What's fun? What catches your eye? And it's comfortable because there's no great men calling you out on anything anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you go into the world, you set sail on the sea afterwards, and you're actually now in this juvenile state of hiding from the terrors of the world. And it does take a great man, the ship captain, to actually come down to you and wake you up. And that's what I see Jordan Peterson is doing. He's like that ship yes, captain. Yes. He's like, hey, kid. Wake up, man. I know you left all that, but you need to you need to get up here. Call on your God. Um, let's go. And when Jonah goes into the sea, he sees the roots of the mountains. And to take that Augustinian reading, I take this meaning he sees the what lies at the base of the great men of the world, mm, mm-hmm. which is the natural virtues, the ones that he kind of eschewed and is missing. And that's exactly what a lot of young men need is a focus on the natural virtues, even if they came from that religious context. And that's what Jonah gets. And that's what allows him to preach persuasively and even to go and confront the king of Nineveh. Um, So, yeah, that's my typological kind of Dude, that was great, man. I love that. I think I think you better end this episode as quickly as you can, because we don't want to sour that note. Oh, I got another. I got another one for you. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not it, yeah. a terribly formed thought, but then yeah, I, we'll we'll wrap it on up. I'm not um, in any rush. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> he mentioned. Uh, he mentioned his book was uh, "We Who Wrestle with God," right? Yeah. I'm curious. I might. I I might grab it. Uh, emphasize mm. might might. Yeah. Maybe we can pull some passages and we'll mm-hmm. re- review some of that. Um. But you know, that's what Israel means, right? Yes. Right. So, mm-hmm. so when when Jacob is renamed. Israel, it's in part because he actually wrestles with God. And I did a whole episode on Jacob and Esau, and I think I even talked a little bit about Jordan Peterson here, because Jacob is described as um, like the Torah scholar in Jewish tradition, mm-hmm. and uh, it says he wrestled in the womb with his brother. Well, when you dig into that, it means he lunged, and then the other kid lunged, and they say, well. Jacob was lunging towards synagogues and then pagan temples were where Esau was lunging towards. So um, eventually Jacob, you know, is birthed and all that good stuff. And he, and he is, is said to dwell in tents, which is basically an idiom for being embedded in civilization. And he's a scholar in civilization, but he's not rough and tumble like his brother. He can't actually yeah. deal with the crazy stuff in the world. Tradition says Esau actually kills um, Nimrod from Genesis, which is pretty wild. Um, 
But yeah, it's a whole journey where he gets to engage with the world. He has to deal with these tough stuff. And I like that Jordan Peterson takes this typology to himself and says, we who wrestle with God. Right. Because he started at Harvard. He started as the, the scholar, the one embedded in civilization, the one who dwells in tents in the ivory tower. And then the world started going wild and he realized he actually had to do something about it. Um, which means that he's now wrestling with God, which in the story of Jacob is the culmination of Jacob's military training that he was prepping to go and fight against and defend his family from um, uh, Esau when they went and met. Long story short, Pat, um, the actual turning point for Jacob ought to be the turning point for Jordan Peterson. Jordan, if you're listening, this is your turning point, buddy. Here it is. The turning point is when Jacob, the Torah scholar, goes out into the desert and he lays his head on a rock, which represents A, a movement of humility, and B, a movement of sacrifice. Because back then, uncut stones are what you use for an altar, and indeed, he then anoints it thereafter. Mm. Um, so what you have to do is you actually have to take this head that's up in the clouds, and you have to bring it back down to earth. You have to put it down as a sacrifice on something which is concrete and solid. And when you do that, you're going to see the angels ascend and descend. You're going to see that hierarchy of goodness and truth and, and uh, existence itself, right? And at the very top is God. But you're going to understand God, not in an abstract, but a concrete way. Right. So good old JP needs some, uh, I think he needs the fourth way. He understands. <laughs> he needs truth. the genealogical argument for he sure, does. right? He understands gradations of goodness. I think if we can show him that's convertible into being, then we've then got him. <laughs> we got him. Just need to sit it. him down and work the fourth way on him, right? Be like, buddy, you got to put your head on the rock. No more floating around. We got to show you that the goodness and the truth that you've been talking about is philosophically yes. convertible into being, and that the cause of all that goodness and truth that you seek is ultimately a being whose essence is to be. Bam. Boom. There you go. There you go. That's 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 my message for him. Uh, cool. Good stuff, man. Well, you want to wrap it up with uh, the last word of anything that was popping through the mind of the Pat? Oh, uh, let's see. I don't know. Announcements. We should just say what we're up to. Stuff like that. Right? That sounds um, good. Yeah. Let's hit that. How much more time do you have? I know you're. Uh, oh, I have I have time. I got 20 minutes. Um, Sweet. OK, cool. Well, let's talk about the stuff we're working on. That sounds fun. Yeah, that is that does sound fun. So I got some I actually got some good news yesterday. Uh got uh an article accepted with one minor revision. Uh so that should be coming out uh a publication. Probably I don't know if I should mention the journal just yet, but it's uh it's uh the article is uh the one on Barry Miller's approach to God. Uh, oh, developing. awesome. So Jake, you're familiar with that one. I think you of had course. an early look at one of drafts, so that's You know that's it. Good. So I was working on that one that was actually originally in my book, the best argument for God, but it was just, it's just too technical. I just, mm -hmm, I just could mm -hmm. not for the life of me, bring that argument down in a way that uh, wouldn't have turned off like 90% of the readers. I'm, I'm very big on rigor, you know, uh, distilling, not diluting, but so I, was, I just took that out of the book. I'm like, I'm just going to make it an independent article. So that's, that's good. I have uh, one coming out, uh, another article in review of metaphysics, uh, this month, this December, the December issue. And that one um, looks at um, uh, tests a hypothesis of whether grounding is essentially ordered causation. Read and that one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get an early peek at some G of this stuff. equals AOC nation. Yeah, yeah, buddy. 
And uh, you know, those EOC, two articles, not EOC. in a sort of, I guess, roundabout way, those two articles are my kind of deep dive investigation of of uh, of two, I think, really important aspects of cosmological reasoning. One is dealing with the regress issue, right? Uh, can there be a, an infinite regress of uh, relevant causes? And I say in the grounding article, if we're dealing with um, matters of deep metaphysical dependence, no, not if you want to uh, cite this as explanatory. So if you're going to cite it as explanatory, it is necessarily terminating. Either it's just not explanatory at all. And most people do want to cite those grounding relations as uh, explanatory. Okay. So that's so that's what that's up to. And then the Miller argument uh, shows uh, how you can get a cosmological going without the PSR, how to get. So it's really two objections. I think they're the kind of two strongest objections, to cosmological reasoning, regress, infinite regress issues and brute fact, fact objections. So in kind of long, tedious way, uh, both of those articles are, are really just kind of trying to take down those those two objections. Um, then I had this book out that, that came out last month and I've just been doing a lot of promotional activity around that. And then I'm just going to take a very long nap. <laughs> awesome, awesome, man. Yeah, how awesome. about you, man? Yep. Oh man. So I'm trying to put together an episode on the ontological argument. So I read, uh, Peter Vanenwagen's, um, very good article where he's comparing uh, Descartes version, one of Ansem's versions, cause he kind of has two. And then, um, oh, what's the other one? Ah, last anyways and another one oh plantigas of course right sure yeah, the model, ones, yeah. so i read that you know the, the stanford encyclopedia of philosophy articles on it some other ones and trying to yep. get my, my doing your general research around. right yeah mm -hmm. and i try i don't always succeed but the goal of my podcast of course cutting the gordian knot is that we take an out-of-the-box way of simply cutting through the chaos and disorder and if I can't do that, it's like, eh, should I really make it an episode? So I want to come up with something that really clarifies this because it's tricky. It's hard oh, to yeah. see what exactly the issue is. So I'm not I don't really want to do the episode unless I feel like the listeners can at least conceivably walk away saying that's a fresh, new and novel way to make sense of something which I, I haven't been able to sort through before. So <laughs> good luck and God bless you, man. That's yeah, quite, quite I, the this task. One might just be beyond me. But the one idea that I have it, that I, I texted you about, um, I don't know if you have any more thoughts on was let's look at what he means by greatest possible being. And here's one way we can think of it. And that is a being which is limited to the smallest possible degree by its form, right? Because form is, is, you know, for the listeners, imagine you're making your holiday sugar cookies. Um, mm. The form is kind of like cutting out the shape of the sugar cookie. It shows you where the sugar cookie stops right. and it can stop in the form of a gingerbread man or a Christmas tree or a whatever else. So if we said greatness means that it limits less sugar cookiness, um, i.e. existence, then we could use that as a way of talking about the greatest possible being would be the one that's limited to the least degree by a limiting factor like a form. And we actually do have a principled stop, which would define the greatest. And that would be one that just has a whatness that just doesn't limit its existence. Right, Pat? And that would be God. Yeah, that's and that um... would be God. So if we take that, then the trick comes in. Well, how do we negate the thesis God exists? And is it possible? Because that's where Ansem starts. He says the atheist says or he says the fool in his heart says there is no God. Well, yeah. if we define God as the being who's not limited 
by any type of, of form, so he's properly unlimited existence, then, okay, in that case, if he's trying to negate that statement, then if he's speaking about anything that's limited, even limited by a mind, such that it abstracts a conception, then that conception would be implying some type of whatness that's other than the whatness that just simply is to be, which means he's not negated the statement. But if he, so he can't actually negate it because he'd have to form a concept in his mind, meaning in a sense, loosely, that form has to inhabit his mind. But there is no form to inhabit his mind because his essence just is his existence. Therefore, it's impossible for him to negate it. And anything that's impossible to negate, and this is a tricky part, I'm not sure if we can defend this, but I think we can. If he can't negate the statement, that would mean that the statement would be true. Therefore, God exists. That's that's the rough sketch, Pat. Okay, that's yeah, that's interesting. Just just thinking aloud, it sounds like that might be a little bit similar to what I thought might be a potential avenue for breaking the stalemate over the possibility premise. So just to kind of like speed people up on the debate of modal ontological arguments. Uh, most most parties in this debate, theist or atheist, uh, agree that the following argument is valid. Uh, possibly God exists, therefore God exists, right? You just have a system of modal logic that enables that inference. So they don't they uh, they don't actually uh, the serious all the serious people that I'm aware of uh, argue about the validity. Where most of the argument is is over that possibility premise. Well, how do we really know? that this being that you call God or you describe as God is, is actually possible. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, you know, there's tons to be said uh, and there's tons that have been said uh, both for and against that. And the one thought that I had is, is maybe, and I haven't thought about this for more than five minutes when I just texted it to you, is that maybe the Thomistic understanding of simplicity could help. I mean, you have to, uh, you know, kind of build out a, a wider theory here, but you know, something, um, it comes down to the idea of boundaries, right? Boundaries on being exclude. Why Why can't you have a square circle? Well, the boundaries of being a, a square exclude the boundaries of being a circle, right? Sure. Um, so the simpler a reality is, I think the more compatible that reality is with other realities, um, certainly on different levels of reality, right? So if the notion of, of God is one of absolute ontological simplicity, that means God is completely free of any internal... Uh, or ex external boundaries whatsoever, right? Uh, and that, to me, would seem to uh, be helpful, right? Because there's nothing sort of uh, outside of God that could be incompatible with God, and there's nothing internally about God that could make him internally logically inconsistent. Uh, and that that seems to me uh, to be something... I'm not going to make a definite stance on here, but that seems to me that, that it might be a useful resource or an avenue worth exploring to really show that just when you have an understanding of God centered around absolute simplicity and wider theories of you know what uh, boundaries uh, being inherently exclusionary and stuff like that, I think you could start to really make the case that, yeah, being that is absolutely simple would necessarily be possible. And then, you know, essence existence purely actual therefore necessarily you know necessarily actual right something like that something in that yeah. general neighborhood yeah at very least if we could throw the burden of proof on them to show why it's simply not possible to have a being that's not restricted by a form okay <laughs> you know that, that might be something you know what you're kind of reminding me of is um 
in my RCA class, I teach um, God as the first lesson. And they come away, you know, with a lot of the arguments for God and descriptions of God. They learned that he's totally other um, in, in a broad range of respects. And then we kind of use that to set for coming into the incarnation, which is just a few classes later. And one example we gave was, I'm like, can you have something that's both square and circular? They're like, no. I'm like, why? They're like, well, you know, kind of like what you said, it basically precludes that reality using the other one. It's basically punching out different parts of the sugar cookie, right? And I'm like, well, can you have something that's um, a square and red at the same time, like 100% red and 100% square? They're like, well, yes. And I'm like, well, why? Like, well, those are different, right? And I'm like, gotcha. Yes, totally right. So if God is entirely outside of creation, well, then strangely, that makes him entirely compatible with it. Because it's not alike making two similar claims on reality. It's making two entirely different ones. That's actually like the precondition for us to say that that Jesus is fully God and fully man is that entirely enormous, ironically, separation between God and man. Yeah, the different orders, right, entirely. So if, right. We, so if we kind of show that, well, that shows a deep compatibility with, like, creation and whatnot, and creation is, an, is we can all affirm, real and actual, and we have something which is being imagined as entirely other, well, then it would be entirely compatible with things which already exist, which seems to be another way of saying that it can exist. So we can defend the possibility premise. Yeah, it seems we're kind of circling around a similar a similar theme here. Yeah. And I would invite yeah. all the young researchers on this podcast to see if there's an idea in that stew of thought somewhere that you could take and, and run somewhere. with. Because... Somewhere. I wouldn't. Because I ain't going to do it. You know, sometimes sometimes I feel like, oh, there's an idea and I just... I just throw it out. I've got too many other things kind of cooking up at the moment, but if someone else wants to take it. If you think it's worth trying to develop, go for it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in that vein, let's see, uh, we should probably wrap it up. We're wrapping up by one. You thinking? Yeah. Okay, probably, cool. Mm -hmm. Speaking of things, which I really wish somebody else would take on, which I probably don't have time to do is the other thing I'm working on that I've also talked to you about. And that's my theory of time. Mm -hmm. yeah and this one's pretty neat i think i'm pretty happy with this but i really want to spell out all of the implications so the basic theory is time is the relation or proportion between a potential that can be actualized and its scale or magnitude and the magnitude of the actualizer which actualizes it so you can imagine it time equals the magnitude of a potential over the magnitude of the actualizer of that given potential and that's actually a a pretty simple theory uh b it's remove when we say that time is derivative of the relation between act and potency it simplifies our ontology and it seems to work across a variety of categories of change most importantly it predicts the infinitely small or minimally sized um length of time of the present because what actualizes our potential to exist is god himself who's infinite therefore we have infinity in the denominator so irrespective of what's in the numerator that goes to infinitely small which would be a description of our of our present moment infinitely or minimally sized um also when we think about god stuff gets kind of interesting because well he has no potential whatsoever so 
he gets a zero up in the numerator, which means he's just not in time, which is true. If we get something which is never actualized with regard to its existence, that's a zero in the denominator, which means that it's just undefined, doesn't relate, which is what we want to say about things which don't actually exist. They don't relate to time because they don't exist. Um, and when we look at various changes, we see that if we increase the power of an actualizer, we decrease time. You raise the thermometer's temperature with a blowtorch versus a match, mm -hmm. you're going to see a change in the quantity of time, um, which is in proportion to the potential to be actualized and the magnitude of the actualizer. Um, there's a couple other things that I was drawing out there, but it seems to do a lot. It also does pretty well with dealing with time dilation with relativity yeah. because we're not stuffing everything into a timeline anymore. We're saying there's things that exist that defines a minimally sized present moment. And then all of the changes simply persist in that they take longer, i.e. the successive present moment, which is being upheld by God in existence will include it still changing. Right. So what's the problem with, with that? And then we can throw things into the formula like, Pat Flynn goes on a spaceship and accelerates <laughs> the speed of light. Well, that would take an infinite amount of power because anything with mass accelerated the speed of light requires an infinite amount of energy, which would require an infinitely powerful actualizer. But if he's being actualized with infinite power, that means for Pat Flynn, time stops, which is A, predicted by my theory, and B, confirmed in the theory of relativity. Boom, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> well, if people came in for Jordan Peterson, we're going to leave them with that to think about. So, <laughs> so good luck. Yeah, my friends. And I know seriously, I guess I told you before, Jake, um, it's been a while since I thought about philosophy of, of time and I forget what I even said to you before, but pursue it, man. Just, just pursue it. It's, I think it's good. You know, obviously you can't pursue everything and I'm often one that just kind of litter ideas and you hope somebody else will pick them up, but I think you got to pursue at least one one good thing, you know, at any given time, right? I agree. I agree. I need to make some time for that because, yeah, ironically, time for that. Or, time you know what? Let, let me put it this way. I wish I was a more powerful actualizer with regard to the potential to create a paper on this. Hardy har. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Pat, it's good to chat with you, as always. I hope people enjoyed this uh, discussion. I hope it was profitable for people or at least enjoyable. So, yeah, we'll see you on the next episode, guys. Cheers, guys.